this is a sort of deep and systemic crisis that necessarily therefore involves a systemic response in finance, in how we work, in sort of scaling up the commons, in sort of extending democracy into all spheres of life. But in particular, that systemic crisis isn't a crisis of our imagination, of our technical ability, but it's primarily one of a crisis of power and of politics. To mandatory redistribution party. <laughs> My name is Jack Lewis Evans. The year is 2031. We thought climate change might be stopped if Jeff Bezos managed to get enough money to afford to save us, if Disney managed to monopolize all creative work on the planet. <laughs> but sadly, the planet is on fire. The sky is on fire. The sea which is made of literal water, is on fire. How did we get here? I think you know. The real question is, how do you stop it? I'm sending this message back in time to you, mandatory redistribution party listener. In this episode, I interview Matthew Lawrence, the founder and director of Commonwealth, the UK-based think tank that designs <coughs> ownership models for a democratic and sustainable economy, who has co-written the new book, Planet on Fire, <coughs> a manifesto for the age of environmental breakdown. Heed the wisdom within, save yourselves. My timeline is doomed, and I'm under attack by quite a lot of robots and fire so I, I i gotta go thank you for enabling me to survive as long as i have with your generous support at patreon.com forward slash mandatory redistribution party and thank you to those of you who share episodes on social media we really appreciate it the last thing sean said before he was burnt to a crisp was thank them for the retweets if you do nothing else, I go for the right side. I feel like if we're talking about climate change, if we're talking about the planet on fire, I don't think we should start with planet. I think we should start within with the fear. For me, it fades in and out of my awareness. And I think if I think about it too much, I have the fear of both climate change. I've got climate dread and I also have fear of that fear. I fear that truly understanding the situation we're in and actually acting rationally on that reality would lead to some uh, wild behavior. There's many layers of the fear. So my, my question to you, Matt, is... Do you remember when the fear first hit you? Yeah, is fear just like a constant feeling, a sort of accompaniment to being sort of uh, alive in a planet? I don't know. Um, 
I think probably probably like a while ago now, but like, you know, looking back to like, I don't know, like Copenhagen, the sort of, you know, completely like catastrophic failed conference. And I was living in, I was studying in the US at that time. And it was kind of like, ah, Obama, the sort of great savior of the world, you know, in his speech the year before, whenever it was, it had said like, well, he's going to turn back the tides and, you know. Rising sea levels threaten every coastline. More powerful storms and floods threaten every continent. More frequent droughts and crop failures breed hunger and conflict in places where hunger and conflict already thrive. On shrinking islands, families are already being forced to flee their homes as climate refugees. Our prosperity, our health, and our safety are in jeopardy. And the time we have to reverse this tide is running out. And yet, we can reverse it. And I think that's one of the things that makes the situation so terrifying is the limitations of liberal institutions and leaders, like not even the right wing people, but that kind of technocratic centrist like the Obama administration, summits like Copenhagen and how they just failed. I mean, Obama specifically gave that speech, then opened more land and oceans to oil and gas drilling than anyone before. The number of oil and gas rigs rose like 18% during the Obama administration. He sold access to 2.2 billion tonnes of coal deposits. He pushed gas, fucking gas as like a green alternative, loads of which comes from fracking, which he massively expanded. And then just ex hit some of his own targets domestically, but just exported shitloads of it globally. So there's this disconnect between the rhetoric of people like that, who aren't even like the worst fuckers. And then there's this ticking clock which some people think is already past zero. Then there's the fact that this isn't just about you know, the weather getting a bit hotter, like your favorite boomer uncle thinks. It's about not being able to grow food. It's about mass extinction, like climate dread, the fear, capital T, capital F, comes from this giant problem and the fact that the solutions seem so, so far out of reach. I think one of the key things in some ways is that Yes, there. Yeah, you know, this is a sort of interconnected systemic crisis that is is not just about rising uh, temperatures linked to emissions. It's about biodiversity collapse. It's about agricultural yields declining due to sort of soil fertility. It's about a whole sort of set of environmental factors. But that like fear, you know, the fear, it shouldn't be demobilizing. Uh, it should be like the trigger to sort of collective action. That like, there's still a window of opportunity here, and there's always you know time to act. One point five is much better than you know. 1.7, but 1.7 is much better than 2, etc, etc. So there's always an imperative act. And so the fear should be should be a trigger towards that. So what he's saying is resist doomerism, folks. Don't despair, organise. Yeah. You've got to ignore the voice in your head saying humanity just can't think about problems like this. The end is, is inevitable. All you can do is learn MMA and build a bunker. Which actually in some ways is more demobilising because if it, you know, if, if it's just kind of like, oh, you know, innate greed and psychological reasons why, you know, humans are ecocidal, et cetera, et cetera. That is actually much harder to sort of challenge than actually saying, well, actually, the crisis emerges from the institutions and structures that we have built. And by we, I mean, sort of, you know, a narrow sort of set of humans on the planet. Uh, but therefore, you know, if it is constructed via sort of social and political institutions, we can recode and remake the institutions, the practices, the forms of living that are currently generating environmental breakdown. It ain't human nature, it's capitalism, it's imperialism, it's patriarchy, which it's important to remind everyone are not inevitable and the only possible outcomes of human nature. Humans can also be 
sound. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This, I think, is a, a good place to jump into discussing some of the popular myths related to these kinds of ideas, like the tragedy of the commons and the ideas that suggest that humans are just inevitably going to destroy any environment they're in at a certain point. So uh, could you explain the story of what happened on Easter Island? Popularised by Jared Diamond, uh, sort of, you know, airport bookseller extraordinaire, etc. His book called Collapse, which kind of uses the story of Easter Island as a sort of miniature parable of you know, humanity's, you know, as a whole's relationship to the earth and then sort of to environmental breakdown. And so the story essentially goes, you know, so, some jolly sort of, you know, explorative, you know, sailors, you know, chanced upon this island and they're like from Europe and they're like, wow, God, this is, this, this island's in complete collapse. And, you know, what they've clearly done is driven by some sort of like ecocidal sort of innate selfishness of humanity. They've, chopped down the last trees that you know their sort of you know, social and um, physical infrastructure relied upon they've overfished the fishing stock they're basically like ruined the civilization even though they knew by the w- way they were consuming and organizing their local economy they were sort of driving it towards collapse and this proves the tragedy of the commons this proves the sort of innate inability of humans to sort of you know manage and steward collective resources and therefore you know ultimately like humanity's sort of uh you know DNA drives us towards uh, environmental destruction and sort of uh, ecological breakdown, which is a very compelling narrative, but the sort of crucial point is that it's it's not true. Get wrecked, Jared. It ain't just humans that fuck shit up. It is specifically imperialism and capitalism. Well, yeah, exactly. Well, quite. And um, so, yeah, the, the quote-unquote explorers, I mean, obviously the, the, what did happen instead was like, the people of the Easter Island, uh, so the indigenous communities there, they had essentially managed to create a sort of you know, sustainable balance in how they managed their relationship and steward the resources on the island. You know, they sort of fished the fishing stock in a way that's sustainable. They had a sustainable relationship, flourishing relationship with the with the environment on the island, reached a relatively high standard of living um, with fairly steady, steady state style economy on the island. And of course, what happened was the sailors arrived and very quickly they brought with them uh, a whole set of diseases. Uh, they sort of introduced, um, you know, they, they began taking like, they literally were taking like target practice at East Islanders from their boats. They introduced, you know, slave uh, raiding. The things they brought with them and the, the way they used and extracted uh, the island's resources completely decimated the uh, environment. And that that's what drove the sort of sharp decline in you know, biodiversity, uh, in standards of living. And then you could ask yourself, well, what, what drove, you know, why were these sailors there? Uh, and it wasn't just because they were in a boat, but because they were sort of propelled by you know, a set of logics which were integral to sort of capitalism and you know, through their into imperialism around the need to expand, the need to accumulate, the need to bring you know, relationships with its nature, labour, you know, sort of social relationships into sort of circuits of commodity exchange, so sort of, you know, cre- and then through that creating money that which then expands in this sort of ever-expanding circle. Uh, and those relationships are mediated via forms of hierarchy, forms of violence, patterns of domination. And so really what, you know, Diamond was right in some ways to say there is a sort of, you know, Easter Island tells a sort of story of the wider world in miniature, but sort of wrong potentially in the lessons, which is instead the lessons are that actually there's these propulsive dynamics of expansion, uh, of enclosure, of extraction, of expropriation, uh, exploitation of nature, natural resources, human relationships, human bodies, human labour. And so we can kind of see, you know, the, the sort of dynamic there becomes of capitalism as a mode of organising nature and labour, imperialism as a sort of form of expropriating wealth from the global south. There's a whole sort of set of, you know, more systemic drivers, which again goes back to that point that it's actually, that is a much more useful 
analysis than, oh, well, it's just because of our innate greediness and we simply can't stop this. Ah, but Matt, have you not considered that our greed is the very thing that will save us, that in capitalism lies our salvation from climate apocalypse? Aren't BlackRock becoming the biggest player in ESGs? Isn't Bill Gates going to put magic electro dust in the atmosphere that will cool us down? Isn't Elon Musk building a mech that's going to just kick the sun further away? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean, to take Gates, what's interesting is I saw he put out a quote yesterday saying like, oh, we need to really increase R&D because 50% of the technologies we need to decarbonize don't already exist. So there's no doubt we do need to sort of you know, expand our human creativity and sort of technical know-how in some areas. But at the same time, you know, a key point in some ways is that actually that's not true. We know the sort of technical infrastructures and we know the sort of uh, types of transitions we need, whether it's you know, heating systems in our sort of land use systems, et cetera, et cetera. In some ways, it's much more a political challenge and it's about challenging, you know, the power of people like Bill Gates' ability to organise investment, to control the future through those flows of investment and actually to sort of insist on sort of social and environmental needs, you know, taking priority uh, and primacy. And it takes stuff like BlackRock, you know, which the world's largest asset management um, firm, it sort of incre is an increasing like, nodal point in not how assets are owned, but sort of whether it's you know, shares, whether in, in corporations, whether it's um, you know, bonds, etc. There's a hugely important role. And think ESG. Uh, for those listeners who don't know what an ESG is, uh, because I didn't before I researched for this episode, is environmental, social and governance investing, which is trying to be like responsible investing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And this is this form of investing, which is supposed to be like, you know, an index of good behavior, et cetera, et cetera. But there's two things. One, if you dig under the bonnet of these forms of you know, indexes, they're often like when you go through the E, the S and the G, they kind of don't really sort of measure up to what we need. And also at the same time, like holding equity that isn't necessarily, uh, you know, holding these sort of, uh, ESG investment um, portfolios doesn't necessarily give you the leverage to affect the behavior of the firms themselves that are, that are doing this. It might have some benefits on the margins, but really, you know, we need a much more holistic approach to the connection between ownership, financing, firm decision making, and sort of sectoral transitions, uh, you know, can a sort of reformist agenda improve things? Absolutely. Are there, you know, different institutional formations in which capitalism evolves? Absolutely. And, are, you know, are, are there differences between sort of Scandinavian coordinated market capitalism transitioning via sort of, you know, fossil fuel intensive, highly extractive North American, you know, you know Canadian, you know, then in some ways uh, one of the worst Canada, but they get, get away with it because they... <laughs> Trudeau has gained a lot from simply not uh, being true. Exactly, exactly. But, but, you know, nonetheless, there are these underlying dynamics uh, and incentive structures that really do stress and challenge the ability to transition. So, but then, you know, that is a political challenge because, of course, you know, we're nowhere near moving towards you know, a post-capitalism or whatever you'd want us to describe it anytime soon. So, you know, I do think within that, it's important to sort of build up sort of prefigurative demands and prefigurative institutions that organise economic, environmental and social relations on, on different logics and, and sort of purposes, while also, you know, reformist, you know, non-reformist, reformist agenda, like what are the reforms we can win now? So it might be like a very significant expansion in public investment. It might be, you know, that again, bends toward logics of meeting environmental and social needs rather than maximising accumulation down the line. Um, you know, it might be about, you know, reforms from you know, managerial prerogative to sort of organised companies and that instead say, well, actually, we're going to sort of insist on you know, new laws, new regulations that in which the, the company, which is ultimately a sort of institution endowed socially with its powers, its privileges, the prerogative there will be like, you know, how can you generate sustainable in, in all its dimensions wealth for 
workers who generate the wealth in the first place, but as well as the wider stakeholders, rather than being about an entity that is you know, designed to maximise wealth for external investors and and sort of uh, executive management. Yeah, sort of gutting that those last two things is said as like two of the defining features of capitalism beyond private ownership of the means of production. But but your point, I guess, is there's possibilities to rein the horror in, and there's light at the end of the tunnel, right? Even very compromised governments have made some progress. Like 97% of Scottish power comes from renewable. Like India has four of the world's 10 largest solar plants. We don't need to go full doomer, folks. There is a way out. Don't succumb to the fear. Boomerism is a very privileged position. Not least when so much of the damage... So, I mean, if you look at you know accumulated emissions, so much of it has come within our lifetime. So it's like it's not like oh well, this is just oh god, this is just a centuries-old problem that's just impossible to resolve. And I think you do have a window in which a set of actors um, that are now sort of at least at least taking this sort of need to transition seriously, which isn't the same as transitioning seriously, but it opens up the sort of political terrain of saying okay, well, you've announced these targets. Your plans are deeply inadequate to meet them. Like, okay, you know, Biden's done this, you know, fairly large climate stimulus, and yet the tragedy is that that is still like deeply inadequate to the scale of transition the US needs to make. You know, the Chinese state saying twenty sixty net zero. You know, admittedly, like we probably have less ability to leverage that, but like, you know, there's an interesting question of like, well, like, what does that mean? How does you know how does sort of global south actors how they support in the transition, etc., etc., etc. If Ethiopia could plant three hundred fifty million trees in one day back in twenty nineteen. Think what wealthy countries of the global north could do yeah. if we could ever convince our journalists that such things would be possible. Which would be, I, I can't remember, it took me 2019, I feel like there's like a day of like daily mail journalists saying incredulously, you want to plant X number of trees. But yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I think one of, one of the things though is, is exactly, you know, going back to housing or, you know, sort of rewilding, et cetera, is, is exactly like, Many of the things we need to do to transition aren't just like, oh, well, that's good, tick boxing, and, you know, it will actually improve our quality of life. Rewilding would certainly improve my life. Just the idea that there's a wolf, there could be a wolf. Imagine seeing a wolf just in a Tesco car park. <laughs> Who needs beavers? Go, go straight to the yeah, apex predators. Even if people say, oh, but, you know, China's sort of, you know, emitting a lot. A... That trend, you know, the transition makes life you know, better for people here, regardless of you know. So we should do it anyway. Whether it's you know, green, you know, decommodified transport, better, more, better insulated housing, sort of you know, cooler, uh, more pleasant sort of environments because of you know, more trees are being planted, wherever it might be. But B, um, you know, obviously the UK and sort of global north, you know, in general, but the UK is you know the birthplace of industrial revolution and sort of you know the exporter of many of these. Uh, practices and you know, the work of someone like Andreas Malm in, in the book Fossil Capital is a good one to sort of dig into in this. But we have an outsized you know, historic responsibility, to put mildly, of, of how we got here. But we also have, you know, exactly partly because of that outsized responsibility and you know, how the what UK's wealth has accumulated historically, we've got outsized capability to, to act. And so, you know, there, there's these sort of multiple reasons which say, regardless of what India, China, etc., are doing, although as you say, you know, it's a lot of interesting stuff. Going on then, we should be making real efforts to move, be a first mover here. Uh, you know, just as the UK was first into the fossil fuel-based industrial revolution age, you know, we should really be trying to be the first out of it into a genuinely equitable and sort of post-carbon 
economy in future. Eco-socialist revolution now, folks. The People's Republics of Green Britain and Northern Ireland. Let's do it. Let's make it happen. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And for reasons far beyond environmental ones, as you say. Like, we know people can make gains out of crises. The right do it all the time. But also the left's done it. You know, the, the, the New Deal came out of the Great Depression. The Russian Revolution sprang from the horrors of the First World War. The NHS was built in the rubble of the Second World War. People already allude to that lineage by referring to the Green New Deal, right? Yeah, it's a... So in a Green New Deal, um, which I guess listeners might have heard of, but sort of a whole society-wide effort to transform rapidly and justly the infrastructures, institutions and industries of a sort of fossil fuel age, like a post-carbon age. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's, it's a hugely exciting uh, political opening. And I think exactly to do it properly, it requires the type of tools that have been sort of politically prescribed for you know, a long time, except, as you say, in, in periods of acute crisis, whether that's transformative public investment, whether that's, you know, democratic planning and industrial strategies to sort of reshape consumption and production in a sort of a really structured way, whether it's about the expansion of the public realm. There's a, there's a whole host of areas which is really exciting. And I think also, you know, the fact that it really stresses that interconnection between social, climate, racial, economic justice, how they're all entangled and you can't separate them out. And, you know, to do one, you've got to do the other. And it's, you know, it's got to be a holistic, you know, all society, all all indexes of inequality-wide effort to push it. Now, of course, that you know, that in its sort of softest forms can potentially collapse back into you know, okay, the state's going to sort of de-risk investment in renewables, but it's you know, let you know, rather have community-owned you know energy generation is going to let BlackRock you know invest by de-risking you know, whatever it might be. I think the New Deal is interesting because exactly if you look into the New Deal and like you know the differences between you know some of the radical currents and the sort of um, the, the 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 big US you know, union now is called the AFL CIO, um, but in the 30s there was the AFL which I think was the Crafts Union a bit more socially conservative and the CIO was the you know essentially quite you know, the US which is quite interesting in some ways in the 30s and 40s and someone like uh, Mike Davis's Prisons of the American Dream is, is a really brilliant book on this, but kind of one of those radical late, well, even before that, if you look at 1890s, 1920s, like a really radical militant uh, labour movement. And that it's, it's that which actually dragged out some of the interesting uh, concessions from FDR uh, in various points, just as the New Deal had, you know, cross currents, different currents, you know, social democrats, communists, you know, radical labour movement, you know, large industrial capitalists who wanted restoration of aggregate demand. You know, there's a whole host of movements feeding into it and there's a whole host of you know on the one hand some of the things the new deal did were genuinely like you know transformative decommodifying rebalancing of power on the other hand it was obviously it sort of sustained and propped up a racialized ordering of yeah it had this coalition but it was still dominated by the democrats was democratic party project as were the jim crow laws in the southern states which the new deal folks in the federal government did fuck all about exactly and you know reliant on this you know devil's bargain with you know racist sort of southern um, political coalition the point with that you know mild detour say like the green new deal itself will have very different currents from you know sort of green industrial capital to socialist organizers to apolitical environmental actors who you know and they might not all want the same thing but you can begin to like hear some of their sort of collective interests and powers to to bring change and some of that might be you know towards more of a sort of like sustaining the space quo with a bit of a shot in the arm of you know investment in green infrastructure but some of it i think really opens up really interesting new political terrains new institutional trajectories. so i think it's, it re- remains a sort of hugely important umbrella term and i think it's it's about politically contesting that and and leveraging out the sort of decommodifying agendas of it the the, the point that it can't just be about and this is where like you know, keynesianism in some ways has a sort of, or at least Keynes had a sort of, you know, fair, you know, if 
sort of in some ways fairly radical prescriptions in terms of you know, euthanizing the wrong DA, you know, sort of a very sort of heavy stress on socializing investment and sort of planning the investment function. But it was ultimately quite a sort of technocratic project. It was a sort of a civilizational project in the sense of like Keynes sort of essentially sought to forestall a sort of fascist revolution from the right or a sort of, you know, communist revolution from the left because he basically really liked like Bloomsbury bourgeois society. That's people, it, what it wasn't about was, you know, the extension of democracy into all spheres of society in the workplace, yeah, sort of the commons in the household, in the state. So let's follow that thread then, the connection between a democratised workplace and averting ecological crisis. Yeah, sure. So so if we take like work, which is in some ways, you know, whether it's wage or unwage, it's one of the key ways we like interact with and manipulate and change the natural world and the materials that th- flow through it. Given the scale of transformation we need and, and the time horizon to change within it, there will be a lot of like work and you know growth, but of a different kind in the next decade or two. If we do this, um, you know, whether it's you know transforming housing, rewilding, building infrastructures, you know, reimagining the law, you know, there's a whole set. There's a lot of work to be done. This is not sort of like a world where we just go like, great, cool, we'll just you know down tools and that's it. And so there is a sort of post-carbon coalition growth, which is not like saying it's about pursuing GB growth for its own sake. It's about you know growing good work, growing forms of sort of equity. All the rest. But then so let's take work. So there's kind of, I guess there's three bedrock positions. So one would be about sort of rebalancing power fundamentally in the workplace. So that's about basic rights for everyone who works, but also like sort of new forms of collective solidarity. So collective bargaining, trade union rights, as well as a whole set of, you know, other measures to sort of make labor more secure. Then we sort of say, okay, well, fine, but you also then go on to democratize the firm, the institution that organizes investment, coordinates production, et cetera, et cetera. Currently coordination, decision-making power is monopolized narrowly, you know, hierarchically and sort of managerial prerogative, and that's linked to shareholder interests, you know, these cons- uh, consolidated blocks of, of external investors. So we actually say, well, no, we need to uh, reimagine the firm and democratise it in the sense of a new legal infrastructure and the law vitally shapes how things operate, which again shows how we can recode things. Workers on boards plus environmental interests have to be the majority of sort of voting power on boards. We need to sort of embed into sort of, you know, Company law requirements to decarbonize over a set timetable, not as a sort of you know, nice, nice thing to say in press release, but actually like by law, you know, you have to have and enact plans to reduce material throughput, to you know, reduce um, emissions, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, sort of new forms of sort of collective ownership from workers. So they actually, you know, the wealth that they generate, they then get a great share in uh, rather than being extracted. So, so democratizing the firm through ownership, through governance, through new forms of, sort of collective voice. And then the third is building up a sort of set of institutions outside of the labour market to sort of de-stress the link between income and work so that people can live much more freely and then work, but work without the sort of the fact that you've got to sell your labour power to survive and reproduce yourself. So de-stressing that dynamic will then hopefully lead to a both a wider rebalancing of power in society, but also then as a result, better forms of work, people having more choice over their own lives, how they work, where they work, when they work. So that would be something like building out of COVID-19, a sort of minimum income guarantee um, start proposal. Um, people like the New Economics Foundation, NEF in the UK have, have done some work on this. You know, IPR have done some work on this, another think tank. So, you know, so like no one will fall below a minimum income standard and that sort of reduces your reliance on the market to work. And so you have power of exit from bad work much more strongly. And then also, and this kind of links to the Green New Deal more broadly, then also alongside that sort of minimum income, um, yeah, a very significant extension of decommodification of key goods services. Um, so in plainer language, that means of providing as almost a right of residency access to certain goods, certain services, free at the point of use, but sort of paid for out of general taxation. So whether that might be 
a national free Apple Fiber, or free at the point of view, so it would still be paid for but, you know, by, by so an upgraded Super Preston model. Paint your town red and green. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, whether it's you know, municipal, municipalities having, um, you know, or, or indeed sort of, you know, Greater Manchester or sort of, you know, sort of uh, geographic footprints that sort of cohere together more naturally, like the powers to you know, publicly owned electric vehicle, you know, sort of through the point of view, paid for out of taxation, wherever it might be. So, you know, these sort of things, housing is another obvious one, you know, very big extension of you know, social housing. Uh, that is affordable, decent, you know, spaciously sort of designed, and also has has exactly these you know, forms of uh, environmental sustainability that that, um, that you know many local councils under huge pressure are already delivering, but sort of really amplifying that up. So so that type of agenda, and that matters not both because communal forms of luxury and you know shared goods tend to have less environmental impacts than you know everyone. If everyone sort of gets in a bus, that's less environmental impacts than everyone getting in a car. You know, and you can just do that for different things. Just think through how. You know, shared and communal forms of consumption are lower stress on the environment than like lots of privatized individual consumption, and it also reduces inequality and it also helps rebalance how we work because if you can live well outside of the, you know, the workplace and relying on selling your labour power to live well, then you can then so you've got much greater power when you do you know work to choose good work to sort of rebalance power between employer and work etc cetera, etc. Cetera. So basically, make work less evil and more useful, which will be good for everyone and also the planet. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's like a, the, old, the old masters going from the realm of necessity to the realm of freedom. And so like, how, you know, how can we equip people with the capability and resources, everyone, to live freely and well, um, which doesn't mean a, you know, a world without work, but it does mean a world in which work is decentered, and when we work, it is... You know, much more about flourishing, the development of capabilities, you know, the meeting of needs. I don't want to revert to my doomer instincts here, Matt, but a lot of what you're saying here seems pretty far away from where we are now. Like, I'll fully concede that some things in the right direction are already happening, but so much of what we're talking about here are like massive, radical, dare I say, revolutionary changes to like our entire society and economy. Like, can we do that, do you reckon? Can we do that soon? I. It would be nice if we could, please. I think many of our listeners would agree. Is it, are such changes possible? A couple of examples of like paradigmatic shifts in economic and sort of social uh, institutions and relationships, and in particular zero in on sort of, you know, Thatcherite revolution as a sort of like obvious, but nonetheless in some ways illustrative example of the type of things that works. And of course there'll be things that are totally different that, that need to be done in this context. But some of the things that, you know, Right to buy, famous that direct policy, transformed housing policy in this country. It was actually prefigured and tested and sort of popularized in places like Wandsworth prior to the Conservative winning. So, like, what are the types of and that? You know, could it be that in you know, in Greater Manchester, Andy Vernon can be like a world first leader in the delivery of an electric vehicle, publicly owned stock, and the transformation of you know Manchester to sort of a fifty minute city? So we're talking about like prefigurative politics, pressure from below. We can kick off to bring about changes where we live and that'll eventually build to national or even global changes. I mean, even talking about Burnham on transport, he didn't just nicely and magically start proposing to bring buses back into public control. It was a result of pressure from various people or groups, not least the Better Buses campaign organised by friend of Manchester Redistribution Party, Pascal Robinson. We can push for change where we live, creating smaller successes that will eventually break through to these what look like huge leaps uh, forward that look like huge leaps uh, that come out of nowhere later on, but they've come from kind of organising and prefiguring uh, these things 
in our communities. So just keep pushing like Thatcher did. The lady's not for turning, etc. Exactly. Can just keep pushing. But then you know, then there was a sort of like there was a there was the development of a sort of common sense narrative that you know combined you know Victorian moralism with a sort of sense of like you know, Britain's in crisis and only the sort of new right can break through the sort of you know, the impasse of the sort of you know, late nineteen seventies uh, and sort of linked to national renewals. So there's potential lessons there, and like in this crisis, only a sort of popular block that's committed to addressing intertwined inequalities while building out better you know, quality of life for all can address this at the scale and speed we need. Uh, it's about, you know, mobilizing sectoral interest behind that. So trade unions in design and just transitions, the role of, sort of certain fractions of green industry, whatever it might be, you know, who are the allies, who are the sectoral interests that we can rent as unions that then like, you know, demand, you know, decarbonize housing stock, etc. So who are the sectoral interests you can pull together? The role of, you know, uh, media and think tanks and ideas generators and disseminators. So that's, you know, the Adam Smith Institute, the IEA, the Institute of Economic Affairs, the whole set of like neoliberal sort of vanguardists who, you know, developed these ideas, popularized them, you know, were linked into, you know, media spokespeople, you know, key columnists, key editorial, you know, uh, sort of sites to disseminate this. So again, what are the type of things we can do here in terms of existing media, building new forms of media, you know, Podcasts, etc., disseminating things, but then also, you know, a new and you know, in my sort of day job, so to speak, director of a think tank called Commonwealth, and you know, so that you know, you can look at autonomy, IPR, NEF, you know, MEDAC. There's a whole host of like really exciting organisations, movements, you know, generating ideas, popularising ideas. There was also sort of antagonistic politics central to sort of the political projects, so you know, the loony left, or you know, the Argentine junta, or you know, Brussels, or the enemy within in terms of sort of um, the trade union movement, etc., etc., etc. There's a whole series, and you know, you could kind of say, well, who might that be? It might be the fossil fuel barons. It might be a sort of defenders of a safe growth. You know, it might be people who are sort of big farmers saying that we can't, you know, wave trips and vaccines. Based. So you can kind of see like. You can begin to build sort of antagonism, which puts you know the majority and the, the many on the, the few, so to speak. You, know, you can see how you can begin to sort of pull of all of those things together, and then you know build you know uh, you know Andy in the buses, but you know the, the sort of seventy eight percent reduction by twenty thirty five. That is an opening because now it's like if it goes from like okay, we need to sort of set a really ambitious target. You know that's that target in some ways could be more ambitious still, but. Setting a target, so that then once that's set, it then shifts the politics onto the politics of implementation, and then it's like, well, that then that's a new political trend. And you know, can you move into the implementation? Wind demands there, and from that, move into the, the granularity of implementation. So, like in certain sectors, it's not just about okay, you need to decarbonize transport, but you actually need to give, you know, make sure that you know, bus drivers are, you know, have have a sort of say can you know, sit on their company board and a trade union rights and collective bargaining, all the right, you know. So if you can, so you can kind of see how you can, you know, keep advancing, keep advancing. Um, but yeah, it's it's obviously a challenge because there are political there's you know, political inertia. There's a sense that a disconnect between the necessarily interlinked but like sometimes siloed elements of environmental justice, economic justice, racial justice, which should be all interconnected, but they're sometimes siloed. Yeah, you know, so there, there are obviously you know big gaps between what needs to be done and what's happening. But I guess you know closing that gap is is the job of politics. And crucially, politics doesn't just mean party politics or winning the next general election. The fight against climate crisis and the capitalism that brings it about isn't just going to be won by one big vote. We need to be organised, we need to be motivated, we need to be on the attack, but not necessarily through, for example, the fucking Labour Party. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it's not to sort of say, look, one strand of the strategy should be sort of obviously trying to contest 
win and then democratize and you know, use state power in, in new and exciting ways. And then obviously that then brings you back to you know, electoral politics and, you know, being some people will be within and then contesting and being beyond the Labour Party and others will be, you know, be anti-electoralist or in different parties. So in some ways, there obviously has to be quite a lot of thought into that. But as you, know, as you say, there are a whole host of other ways, you know, of building social power, mobilising the type of leverage we need to affect change. And it has to be a sort of whole court press sort of strategy uh, and effort because, you know, relying just on electoralism or relying just on, you know, the trade union movement or, you know, whatever it might be, that they, they won't be enough on their own. So it needs to be a sort of whole court press. Um, and I think that's also then how you get a sense of, like, energy and momentum going forwards. Matt, thanks so much for coming on Mandos. I've enjoyed listening to your ideas, as I'm sure uh, our listeners have. Aside from encouraging folk to buy the book you've written on this stuff, which is, by the way, Planet on Fire, a manifesto for the age of environmental breakdown, uh, do you have any closing remarks you'd like to leave our listeners with in our collective quest to combat doomerism and the fear? Just the key point I would yeah would stress is this is a sort of deep and systemic crisis that necessarily therefore involves a systemic response in finance, in how we work, in sort of scaling up the commons, in sort of extending sort of democracy into all spheres of life. But in particular, that systemic crisis isn't a crisis of our imagination, of our technical ability to decarbonize, et cetera, et cetera. It's primarily one of a crisis of power and of politics, which is both presents sort of difficult challenge but not an insoluble one this is a challenge that you know we can contest reshape and sort of transform uh, and so as as you know as uh, difficult as the challenge might seem sometimes it's actually in some ways it's sort of it's it's one that not that we sort of can win it's one we really have to win um, and so i guess that is the collective task for us i'm hyped we can do it people let's go let's get on yeah, it let's go yeah let's get Should on end with more of like yeah and let's go <laughs> Mandatory Redistribution Party was created and produced by Sean Morley and Jack Evans. Our title theme was created by Ella Jean. Plant on Fire, a manifesto for the age of environmental breakdown is by Matthew Lawrence and Laurie Leyburn Langton. It's published by Verso and available now. Thanks for listening and big flaming planet-sized thank yous to those of you who support us on Patreon or share episodes on social media. Stay safe, folks. Till next time. <laughs>